rationalization as we use it in contemporary English usually doesn't mean making something rational, which would be good. It means convincing yourself something's rational after you've already done it, <laughs> which is presumably bad. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I've always been interested in the quest for rationality in public policy, and I've surprisingly encountered resistance here and there amongst people saying that humans are at their core irrational beings. This may be true. What is the proper balance then between logic and emotion in rational decision-making? Wanting to explore this topic, I have sought out an expert. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please give me a like on your podcast app. You can join the discussion at Facebook slash groups slash The Rational View. I'd love to hear from you. Justin E.H. Smith is Professor of the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Paris. He is the author, among other books, of Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason, and of the forthcoming The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. He writes a regular Substack newsletter at https justinehsmith.substack.com. Dr. Smith, welcome to The Rational View. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you coming on the show to talk to me. So I've always been interested in, in rationality. The name of the podcast is The Rational View. And I saw your, your book on irrationality and, and read a little bit about it. And it seemed very topical for, for the podcast. And I've been looking at the philosophy of thought a little bit. I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a doctor of philosophy, but I'm a physicist. So <laughs> to start us off, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to be professor of philosophy and science? Sure. Uh, I did a PhD in philosophy some years ago at Columbia University in New York, uh, where I worked for some years on the philosophy of Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who was a 17th century German philosopher, mathematician, linguist, inventor, and diplomat, and many other things besides. Uh, Leibniz was also a member of the school of thought that we usually call the rationalists, alongside René Descartes and Baruch Spinoza. There are some other figures who are part of this same movement, but those are the big three. Uh, and Leibniz, I would describe as a hardcore rationalist. You cannot get any more hardcore than Leibniz. Uh, but what exactly that means, I think, would take more than uh, the time we have to spell out. But one thing that I would say is that Leibniz believes, as a rationalist, that the most important knowledge that we have is prior to experience uh, and that it shapes uh, 
our experiences rather than our inferences coming to us through experience. So logic and the imposition of uh, the logic that comes, as it were, pre-stocked in our minds on the world is crucial for him. So that was many years ago, uh, and uh, I have developed in all sorts of different directions. I also work extensively in the history of science as opposed to, or as distinct from the history of philosophy. And it's in that capacity that I moved to the University of Paris in 2012, where I work in a department of history and philosophy of science. I see. Okay, very interesting. Um, so yeah, I happened across your book, History of the Dark Side of Reason, and it seemed very intriguing to me uh, because it's something I'd been thinking about as well, you know, and how uh, current events seem to be going away from rationality <laughs> in a lot of cases. Could you maybe give our listeners a, a little thesis of your book? Sure. I, I suppose uh, it is a book that's written in a dialectical fashion, which is not terribly popular these days. And what I mean by this is that I don't uh, rigidly and uniformly uh, defend a single thesis. Rather, I move through a thesis and its opposite in order then to see if I can come through uh, to a as it were, a higher order synthesis or resolution of the tension between those two. And the main tension driving the, the entire book is the opposition between rationality and irrationality. Now, I just said that I, uh, I've done a lot of my scholarly work on the philosophy of Leibniz, who was a rationalist. I'm very sympathetic to him. I am not, however, myself a thoroughgoing rationalist. Um, I, I am not a Leibnizian, uh, uh, more particularly. Why not? Well, because I think uh, that um, uh, uh, the commitment to rationality as the solution to all of our problems uh, is something that uh, is going to uh, bring us up short. Uh, and I have some particular examples of this that I can get to. Uh, Leibniz, for example, thought that we could resolve all social, political, deep, diplomatic problems by uh, a, a, a sort of reasoning that he referred to as calculation or what we might also translate as reckoning. And he thought that this could be done by means of uh, machines. That is to say, we could uh, input our respective diplomatic positions into reckoning engines and they would churn out for us uh, the uh, kind of final uh, solution to the question which side uh, uh, of this dispute between two empires about to go to war is right. And uh, that would resolve the problem and we would have world peace. If we could just uh, figure out how to outsource a bit more of our power of reasoning 
to reckoning engines, we will have uh, never-ending world peace. That has some interesting parallels to the artificial intelligence uh, work that's being done, and the the narrow artificial intelligences are, uh, you know, are becoming very powerful and, and smarter than people in certain narrow fields. They can, you know, they can beat the the world chess champion, and uh, so these these super intelligent, but um, somewhat psychotic, uh, narrow AIs, <laughs> they don't have the emotional uh, parallels to, to human reasoning, and they end up giving you somewhat psychotic solutions in a lot of cases. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, here, uh, uh, on things like uh, uh, being beat by a computer at chess... Uh, I'm inclined to agree with the philosopher John Searle, uh, who said that you should no more worry that the the computer is smarter than you uh, when it beats you at chess than you should worry. Imagine you get like a a 20 meter tall iron tower on wheels and you put a football on top of the tower and then the iron tower on wheels rolls across the football field while all these tiny little men are trying to tackle it. Obviously, they're not going to succeed, but uh, no one would even bother to worry that for that reason, the Iron Tower is better at football than they are, right? Um, the, the the worry just wouldn't even come up because it's 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 very narrow, and what it was built to do is something that's so far from what we mean by football, and arguably. Um, Similarly, when Deep Blue simply runs through at, you know, a massive speed all the possible moves on the chessboard, that's not what we mean by playing chess either, right? Um, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a long question, but indeed, um, I'm not committed to the idea that there is a special... Uh, a special mysterious je ne sais quoi that makes a makes a human mind what it is. Um, I think it's an open question whether uh, the hundred billion neurons in the human brain can be uh, emulated in a, a, a you know in a silicon based system or by string and toilet paper rolls or whatever. Those are open questions, right? But what we know for now is that the way the human mind processes the world um, is from the starting point, you know, from the very first uh, uh, steps you would take in putting it together, a different kind of system than a computer. And for that reason, I'm not worried or enthused about anything like uh, a looming singularity or uh, the dawning of consciousness of of the machines. That's not to say that machines can't make our lives a living hell, can't dominate us in a certain <laughs> way. It's just they're not going to dominate us because they because they they become conscious. I've spent some some time looking into this in a, in a previous series of podcasts, and there is some interesting work being done on um, simulating emotional decision-making. Yeah. And that seems much more human in its responses than the narrow AIs that the vast majority of computer scientists have been working on. So it, it's an interesting, it was an interesting realization that uh, by simulating emotion 
uh, and giving it um, uh, graphs, basically, which connect thoughts to human-like emotions as input. So it's giving human-like emotional weight to the inputs, then the outputs become much more human in their understanding and their seeming. And I thought, well, okay, this, this is one of the things that caused me to come looking about, okay, well, maybe, obviously, rationality isn't what's making human decisions, or the, uh, the narrow AIs would seem more human, and they don't. They seem alien. And so that made me question, because I've always held out rationality as an ideal to be worked at as well. And, you know, similar to Leibniz, uh, you strive to be rational in your decision making. You want your public policy to be rational. You want your risk analyses to be rational and not emotional. You know, I've always kind of idolized Mr. Spock from Star Trek. <laughs> the, the Vulcan was, was, this was what humanity should be, right? But what is the proper balance, right? How does, how does emotion enter? Maybe it's best to think in terms of balance. You know, one of the things that keeps coming back in the book is um, a lot depends what we mean by rationality. And it's pretty easy, at least for human beings, uh, if not for Vulcans or androids, to uh, eliminate uh, the uh, kind of... um, emotionless, merely calculative form of life as the most rational one. Why? Well, because it doesn't work, right? Uh, it will come back to bite you. You'll, you'll, you'll traumatize yourself and have a nervous breakdown eventually. And I don't know, not necessarily, but it's, it's at least something will go wrong if you suppress emotion, right? So then arguably the best, uh, most rational form Form of life is the one that uh, figures out how to most productively and successfully modulate, uh, manage uh, the uh, passionate uh, emotional dimensions of existence that you are subject to simply because you've got hormones rushing through you and. Um, and you're, again, not put together in the same way that an ideal machine would be, right? Yes, yes. I mean, are emotion-based decisions irrational? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, they can also, and this is the, there's a lot of this in um, uh, the history of moral philosophy. David Hume, for example, uh, explicitly argued that uh, reason should be a slave of the passions, uh, not because um, uh, he wanted life to be disorderly and chaotic, but just because human beings are passionate beings and uh, the, the, the passions will do a better job of guiding you. And you see this, you know, in various strands of um of moral philosophy today, including, say, conser- in conservative thought, the idea that disgust uh, is uh, a reliable uh, uh, indicator of uh, moral uh, 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 offensiveness. Um, that, and, you know, I, I, I personally disagree with that view because I think disgust is wrapped up with things we also find highly pleasurable. That's why we like disgusting food. Like, 
lobster and stuff like that because <laughs> it's right at the boundary between being revolting and being wonderful. Um, but still, the idea that disgust is a reliable guide um, to leading the moral life is an example of uh, of a very um, you know a very uh, thoroughgoing attempt to incorporate uh, emotion, passion, because disgust is a passion uh, in the sense that it bowls you over uh, whether you want to be disgusted or not, uh, to incorporate this into, you know, legal frameworks, into uh, uh, decision, you know, legal decisions about gay marriage, things like that. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a real ongoing debate that kind of shows how, um, how, uh, uh, people legitimately, whether their conclusions are right or not, legitimately um, kind of recognize the limits of rationality uh, in uh, fundamental human decision making. Yeah, I, I just watched um, the biography Mr. Jones about uh, the Soviet Holodomor and the families' famines in the Ukraine caused by you know, ideology trumping reason and rationality. And, and, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast. I see the damage that can happen when politicians are given the power to implement ideologies without regard for science and rationality. I'm sure you probably have examples in your book about <laughs> how that goes. Sure, sure. In fact, I mean, the, the book is structured in the, 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 um, the oh, there's it kind of opens with uh, uh, a legend uh, uh, a, a Pythagorean philosopher named Hippasus, uh, Hippasus of Metapontum, uh, supposedly divulged to outsiders. Uh, the mystery of irrational numbers, which story goes had been invented, or no, sorry, invented, uh, discovered by the Pythagoreans, and it freaked them out, right? Because if the the, the you know the square uh, or sorry the square of the diagonal uh, is a non-terminating decimal series, that means. Basically, reality just doesn't make any sense, right? Um, and so they wanted to keep this absolutely secret. Um, Hippasus goes and, and divulges it. Um, his fellow Pythagoreans learn that this is what he did. They say, hey, Hippasus, let's go out fishing. They take him out in a fishing boat. And then when they're out in the middle of the water, they hold his head under the water and drown him. Um, that's the story. Uh, 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 but, and it shows how, well, it shows a couple of things. It shows how, um, you know, seriously people have taken, uh, things that to us today seem trivial, but also the Pythagoreans were among other things, an extremist religious sect that was hyper devoted to rationality. Right. Um, so this was against their religion, the irrational numbers. They discovered it and it was a horrible secret, a horrible, dirty secret amongst them. <laughs> but also in the end, you know, what they were also devoted to is a form of orderly, rationally structured living. Right. Um, and so this legend reveals a kind of uh, is a kind of uh, pattern that I think keeps coming back again and again, where um um, people become so devoted to um, 
this ideal of rational uh, ordering of society that when it starts to break down, they, um, they, they engage in a, a blood fast. And this happens in the Bolshevik Revolution and it happens in the French Revolution. And the French Revolution is a wonderful example of this because, you know, you've got people... Um, uh, loudly proclaiming the values of enlightenment uh, uh, while they are while they're chopping people's heads off right and left, and then inevitably getting their own heads chopped off too. It was a bloody mess. I mean, in terms of numbers, I think it was like twenty five thousand beheadings in Paris between seventeen ninety one and ninety three. That's not a huge number in term, you know, if you compare it with with uh, Ukrainian famine or other modern massacres. But it was so um, directly connected to um, uh, uh, the rhetoric of um, of of enlightenment and reason. Uh, that um, that it's really it's really worth studying, and so you know that's kind of uh, the that's getting closer to the heart of my thesis. Like you know, I don't want government by theocrats uh, who um, who despise science and uh, and say everything is in God's hands. Let's just let's just sit back and pray or something like that. That's like you know aggressive irrationalism that we see in various parts of the world, including my home country. Um, uh, I don't want that. But uh, what we also see is that um, simply declaring. Uh, loyalty to uh, to to rationality uh, as uh, the as the, the 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 solution to all of our social problems is always inevitably going to uh, going to come back to bite us as well. So indeed, uh, what we need is something more like. Uh, uh, an Aristotelian ideal of um, practical wisdom, uh, knowing what to do in situations uh, uh, that um, that you know uh, doesn't suppress uh, passions so much as again uh, modulates them. So, the the evolutionary background brings emotion with it, and you know we all would like to be making decisions that are in line with our emotional needs and wants. But that can also lead us astray because now you have bias. I mean, that, that's identified as bias in the scientific method. So I struggle with, with bringing that in as a, as a component of, of decision-making. I mean, we all like to, to have our emotions aligned with our logic. That's the best situation for whoever is doing it. And that a lot of people just lazily go along with that without thinking. And I, I think now also there's a, a, an additional um, uh, species of bias that, that is peculiar to our, let's say, our information environment, which is um, that it's so easy now to uh, pull up and to share on social media a scientific study that more or less agrees with the point that you all already want to make, right? Cherry picking is very easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and how to how to control this is a problem that um, 
it, you know, that can't simply fall to science itself because, you know, in a sense, science just gives us no real um, guidelines, political or ethical, for um, navigating bias. We can study bias scientifically. Sure. It's fascinating, um, you know, the uh, to see, especially in social social media meme culture, over the past few years, the rise of memes that are humoristic variations on the trolley problem. You know, the Philippa Foot's famous uh, uh, kind of thought experiment. Uh, uh, if you can uh, shift a trolley onto another track that will kill one person or leave it on the same track and it will kill five people should you kill that one person. Um, now, this is so popular right now because it's uh, uh, a central part of AI ethics. In particular, the trolley has morphed into a self-driving car and so these are very practical problems. Uh, but there's a lot more in Philippa Foote in the 1960s, surely saw this. There's a lot more to ethics than just solving the trolley problem. And indeed, it might be, at least in terms of absolute moral principles, it might be unsolvable, right? You know, there might not be an answer to it. Um, and the idea that that you can you can just take up this problem, think about it, think about its variations, and then implement it in reality in the form of self-driving cars is is pretty um, uh, uh, pretty dispiriting in my view. And it's also you know it's, it's a difficult problem. It's it's not a, a straightforward answer, and the people that are implementing these questions are or implementing the answers to these questions are not philosophers of, of morality. <laughs> in most cases, they are, you know, a small subset of, of engineers, which are highly selected <laughs> individuals. I think there's more and more uh, cross-fertilization uh, between uh, academic philosophy and uh, the tech world. Indeed, uh, the you know, the tech world is now poaching some ethicists from academia. Um, uh, but of course the problem, and similarly in uh, uh, academic uh, moral philosophy, you, people are increasingly constrained to talk about problems that are passed down from uh, uh, the people who make the real decisions <laughs> in, the, in the tech world. Um, and, uh, you know, the problem is, that, of course, that they, uh, in that world, uh, are driven by, uh, at the end of the day, by a, by a lust for profit. <laughs> and uh, they'll always find a way around any of the ethical concerns we have. And so ethics becomes more a kind of a branch of public relations <laughs> more than anything. What's ethical? Well, whatever we're able to get away with without too much public outcry. Well, that's actually very human because I think in, huma in humans, we make emotional decisions and the rational part of us is used to justify why we did that. It's actually an, an analogy here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ration I mean, that's such an interesting fact that the term rationalization 
as we use it in contemporary English usually doesn't mean making something rational, which would be good. It means convincing yourself something's rational after you've already done it, <laughs> which is presumably bad. <laughs> um, I find that fascinating. Yeah, no, it's, it's a big problem. And, and you know, we pay the... We pay the price for irrational decisions uh, in in politics. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, I guess to get, uh, get back more to the um, the the question, you know, what do we do with emotion? What do we do about the fact that we're not entirely rational? One of the key themes of the book is that that you know, well, typically in economics, economics is a wonderful example of this, or uh, related fields like game theory or rational choice theory or decision theory, um, it's easiest to take it for granted, to just state at the outset that um, the kind of idealized rational agents that we're, uh, that we're imagining in this thought experiment uh, are such that they want to maximize their profits um, and to live as long as possible, right? Um, that and so for in many contexts, for for many kind of rather formalized fields of academic inquiry into rationality, that's just what rationality is. It's wanting to get rich and live long, right? Um, and we know, of course, that this doesn't always hold. And in, in the book, I, I give the, the example of, let's say someone is an ascetic monk, um, and, uh, you know, let's say a Franciscan or something, and they are They've taken a vow of poverty. If anyone tries to give them money, they think it's dirty and, and, and it makes them feel bad, right? There are people who feel bad when, uh, when people give them money. So try to, try to set up a, a, a logic puzzle with such a person and tell them, if you get this right, you'll win a million dollars, right? Um, now, there's a case of someone who is going to evade the right answer, uh, just to not get stuck with a million dollars. And the fact that human beings are complex in that way, also altruism, self-sacrifice, um, sometimes we do things for others um, um, that really do not maximize our own benefit, but we do this, you know, why do we do this? Well, Strictly speaking, altruism is irrational at an individual level, right? Uh, but there's another factor, which is that we're mortal um, and that anyone who's really paying attention um, has to have the dawning awareness of the fact that it's pretty hard or has to have at least a suspicion that simply indefinitely extending out whatever whatever I've got going right now that I call my life can't in itself be good, right? Um, and uh, because you know it's like it's like if that were the case, then you know a person who lives ninety years will necessarily have more good than a person who lives 40 years. And we know that that's not always true. We know that that's um, 
that 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 it's just a basic misunderstanding of the goodness of life to measure the length of it, right? I mean, of course, longevity is good in a sense, but it's not the only thing. So, so you know, you're really forced very quickly when you're thinking about such things, about the limits of rational choice theory to really accommodate what a human being is, you're forced pretty quickly to start thinking about some pretty deep existential questions uh, that invariably touch on the kind of the horizon of our mortality as something that shapes our lives. You can you can value. I mean, the question is, what metric do you use to value life, and how do you score points in that? And and money is is one metric, I guess, that you could use. But I, I think a a, a better uh, metric would be personal freedom maximization. I mean, that's why you're seeking money is to maximize personal freedom. And I think that gets past your, your, your aesthetic monk issue. Perhaps. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in a sense, you know, the, um, the kind of the asceticism as a form of life or when monks, uh, go begging or when the ancient cynics, uh, like Diogenes of Sinope and others, uh, you know, the famous story of Diogenes of Sinope when Alexander the Great learns about him uh, and says, I have to go meet this wisest of men. Diogenes is lying in the gutter at the marketplace, you know, wearing like a, an animal hide, um, just completely unkempt and looking like a beast. And Alexander the Great says to Diogenes, you are the wisest of men. Your reputation uh, uh, has has extended throughout the whole world. Tell me what you want and it shall be yours. And Diogenes looks up at him and he says, get out of my light. (laughs) 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 That's that's what he wants. And indeed, Alexander gives it to him. He steps out of Diogenes' light. And that's such a wonderful example because, yeah, indeed, you know, the idea is that uh, if you really understand what freedom is, then you really don't want anything, right? Um, and, um, you know, is that more rational? Some of the cynics took this to ridiculous excesses, right? Like they, they thought, oh, cooking is just a ridiculous social convention. It's a nicety. It doesn't really change anything. One of them goes and tries to eat a live octopus from a tide pool. And, you know, it's just crazy because you realize like, okay, it's not that you've got just pure, like rational, right conduct of life on the one hand and a bunch of arbitrary social conventions on the other hand. It's more like you've got a complex inter, interweaving between these two where many social conventions start as a way of helping us through the world and then they get carried away into something that doesn't make any sense, but neither does it make any sense to give them up altogether, right? Um, and so it's hard to it's hard to just remove yourself from all of the irrational, arbitrary things people in our civilized world do. Yeah. So so does that doesn't leave us any closer to to getting to an agreed system of public policy that gives us the best answers. And unfortunately, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean. You know, I, I actually with public policy, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, 
uh, I know some people and I follow the arguments of people who are really pro-nuclear um, as, um, as an environmental, uh, a long-term environmental strategy to cut CO2 emissions. Uh, we wouldn't have any of this ecological crisis if, uh, if the lefties hadn't shut down the nuclear power uh, uh, path um, uh, over, the, over several decades. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I am strongly against nuclear power. Um, and then when I try to find a good rational basis for that, uh, it's because I, uh, because I'm risk averse, um, because, and because we don't, because we don't know what the future is going to be like. Um, uh, nuclear power plants have to be maintained, um, in order for disasters to be averted. Um, we don't know for how long. Uh, people are going to have their act together sufficiently to keep them maintained as they have to be, right? So uh, that that inclines me towards the kind of cons- like e- ecological uh, thinking that these friends and associates of mine think is a, a hopeless dead end, right? Um, and it's a really, really interesting case study because... Uh, I don't. I if you're just trying to say we need to listen to reason, I'm like, okay, I still don't know what we should do. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you've uh, you've touched a nerve because I'm probably identify as an eco modernist myself, uh-huh. and uh, I am on the side that that believes that nuclear power is the best way to prevent carbon buildup in the atmosphere and and address the realities of of modern life with power. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we're seeing it in Ontario right now. We had the, the Green Energy Act was, was introduced by an ideologically motivated government, and now we're paying through the nose for it. And, yeah. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're planning on shutting down nuclear facilities and trying to replace them with with wind and some uh, Rube Goldberg scenario with wind and water and batteries. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you could... You could be right. Again, I'm in suspension on this, uh, and I I bring it up more as a more as a case study. But when you're looking at, say, the rational, the like total rationalization of in the good sense, not the sense of uh, ad hoc justification for what you've done wrong, but the total rationalization of, uh, let's say, commercial air travel over the past several decades. You know, we're now at a point where uh, you can tweak something a little bit, um, but that tweak would have uh, just as much of a likelihood of an unintended uh, uh, harm further down the line in terms of safety, right? Uh, we have we saw that when they, um, they added... Um, uh, uh, bolt the possibility to bolt the door of the cockpit after September 11th, yes, and then yes. the German wings pilot bolted the door when he committed suicide in the German wings plane in the in the French Alps a few years ago. Like you know, you can you can try yes, to eliminate yes. risk, but the but the, that attempt itself will bring about new risks. Um, and but in the airline industry, what we have is you know something that 
is known, we know what this thing is, um, where uh, it's a lot harder, I think, uh, is when we are uh, sticking ourselves with something that's not, you know, an eight hour flight, but is, you know, 10 or 20,000 years into the future where you just can't anticipate um, all of the all of the possible uh, all of the possible consequences over such a such a such a vast uh, time scale, right? That's my that's my main concern. It reminds me a little bit about the you know the flying versus driving things. Statistically, we know flying is a much safer way to go long distances than driving. Yet after the the nine eleven airplane hijackings, many people. F- said, I'm not going to fly because it's too dangerous. And the number of deaths as a result of the people driving instead of flying was much larger than the actual terrorism incident. And and I, you know, I see, you know, looking at the numbers, trying to look at, you know, what is the safest way forward? Nuclear is, is right now the safest way to make power in large amounts. Yes, it's hazardous and it needs to be managed. Obviously, that's the main issue is, is, is what are the uh, potential drawbacks of, of mismanagement because it's a human, any human thing can be mismanaged, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we are really, really bad at assessing risks. I mean, I always find it astounding that um, that the, 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 the number of people we're willing to see die in uh, uh, traffic fatalities. Um, it's such a high number a number that we would never tolerate for air travel, and why this has not become an issue, uh, like, you know, an, an issue of grave concern for society, is really, really very interesting. Uh, yes, I, I yes. would add, though, that I myself suffer from severe fear of flying. Um, and I have been... Uh, uh, I've had a, a, um, a year of respite now because we haven't been able to travel <laughs> and it's transformed me. Uh, I used to have regular recurring nightmares about being in a, in a plane that was crashing and those nightmares have gone away. Um, I used to, I used to fly all the time and I was always terrified and I was always among, you know, the 0.0001% best informed about airline safety statistics, you know, and I, yep, I would yep. always get furious when people would, you know, learn that I was terrified of flying and start, start, telling me about statistics and I'm like, I can, it doesn't help, right? It's an emotional response. And there, there's a case where I would really like to have the, whatever, whatever part of my uh, brain is responsible for that emotional response. I, I would like to have it removed. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to just have it taken out and, uh, you know, be, uh, be, uh, 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 tr- transformed into something more Spock-like. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, as as pro-nuclear advocates, we come up against that fear in, in nuclear as well. And it's it's you know it's it's a a difficult thing. You can't just quote facts to these people. It doesn't work. It it doesn't convince people. It, it makes them 
shell up and <laughs> and justify. Yeah, yeah. Like again, people are really bad at assessing risk. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely uh, one of the the problems that I'm hoping to to solve with this podcast. And uh, you know, all I can do is is try to dig into the issues and ask questions and 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 have more people thinking about the issues. I think that's maybe the the best the best way forward at this point. And, and yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So we're kind of coming to the end of our, our time here, and I've really had a, had a good time talking with you about rationality. It's uh, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.